Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of the Spectator, and my guest this week is Erica Benner, the author of *Be Like the Fox*, a new biography of Niccolò Machiavelli. Now we all think we know what Machiavellian means, but it says Erica, he's actually much misunderstood. In what way is he misunderstood? Well, when we read *The Prince*, which is by far his most famous work, we think we see passages like "Better to be feared than loved." We don't actually see the ends justify the means, but you can see passages in there that seem to suggest that. He's got this sort of dark, sinister side in The Prince, and that's what most people latch on to when they read him. Um, And sometimes they're attracted by this. Uh, They think, well, at least this is the first sort of political philosopher who's talking about the truth about politics and human nature. You know, better to have it out and know what we're dealing with than imagine that all human beings can be angels. But in fact, if you read him more closely, you see he says other things that sort of clash with those darker statements, present a more kind of positive view of politics and of human nature. So what was it he was trying to achieve? I mean, was it, I mean, one of the obvious cruxes is, is it a manual for statecraft, a manual for oppressing the people? Or is it, is it a form of satire? Is it a you know, what sort of book is it? Well, exactly. Um, I mean, it's taken as a treatise most of the time. People read Machiavelli very straight, take every single word he writes and try to, you know, make sense of it in terms of his own views and his own voice. Um, what I started to believe, the more I read him and saw the tensions between these dark and more, you know, constructive, moderate statements, is that he's actually writing ironically. He's, he's presenting in different voices, he's giving a different views of politics and sort of prodding readers to try to think for themselves about which of these statements, the more cynical ones or the more kind of constructive and moderate ones, are the best way to go if you want to kind of create stable states. So, I mean, you might ask why he's doing that exactly, because... Clearly, you know, if he's if he's trying to get a message across, yes. veiling it in irony and self-contradiction is a very apparently odd way of going about it. Well, exactly, yes. I mean, there, there are a few different reasons. The background to the prince helps to explain a little bit, and this is what in my own, in this latest book, I, I tried to kind of explore. Turns out that Machiavelli wrote the prince 10 months after he'd been imprisoned on suspicion of being involved in a conspiracy against the princely family in Florence, where he was born. And it's usually thought that the usual view is that he was writing this book in a way to try to please the princes who'd come into power and tortured him to get back in their good books because they didn't trust him. Um, And so he's sort of praising lots of princes and saying, I want to help you get more and more powerful. But in truth, he seems to actually have been very, very kind of, uh, you know, so unpopular with these princes he was right, supposedly writing the book for, that um, it's really unlikely he would have been seriously doing this. But he, he offers veiled criticisms of princes all the time. He couldn't sort of openly criticise a lot of the behaviour that he describes. So he describes it seeming to just present it in a neutral way, but the sort of criticisms underneath that would have been dangerous for him to state openly. And yet he did, didn't he, dedicate it to... Lorenzo de' Medici, did, is that right? He did. Yeah. Lorenzo the Younger, de Medici. We're not sure at all that he ever showed it to anyone um, in the Medici family while he was you know, still alive. We do know that they saw it at some point while he was still alive and forgave him for writing it. But um, my strong suspicion is it's so it's so kind of cheeky. Uh, the advice he gives to princes is not the kind of advice that a family that's trying desperately to look kind of uh, like a legitimate, God-fearing family, you know, would have taken warmly to. They, they see this kind of advice that the way to power is to sort of cheat, murder, lie, uh, you know, lie your way up. 
why would they... Yes, you don't want the manual out there. Well, exactly. You know? why, would, why would they have, uh, have said, oh, let's, this, this guy's telling us the truth. Let's bring him back into our um, bosom when he just sort of... They just had him imprisoned and tortured under suspicion of challenging them. Can you sketch in a little bit of, of the sort of background, this environment? Because, of course, Florence was notionally a republic at yeah. the time, and that seems to be something at the heart of what he's what he's writing exactly about. yeah that's right i mean florence had was in name a republic and had been for several centuries but um for about 80 years the medici family had sort of gradually got their way their way into sort of ever more princely power in name they were not princes in names they were just first citizens but and they kept up this fiction that they're just sort of helping to stabilize this unstable free republic but by the time Machiavelli was born, this fiction had basically been exposed as, as a fallacy. And the Medici had been their third generation of being a hereditary dynasty. And they'd reduced the rule of law. They reduced the popular participation in the state. And Machiavelli and his family had a long tradition of actually opposing the Medici and defending Republican principles. second cousin had been involved. And so there was a sort of... Slight blot on his name from the beginning, wasn't it? Yeah, quite a blot, yeah. I mean, we don't know exactly what Machiavelli's father's positions were, but there's some kind of indirect evidence that he was probably not in the good books of the Medici because of his family, his second cousin's involvement in an earlier conspiracy against them. Machiavelli himself only came of age and went into politics when the Medici were thrown out for a rather brief period, 18 years, when Machiavelli was in his late 20s. These Medici, after 80 years, were kicked out, sent into exile, and a very popular republic was restored in Florence. Machiavelli then comes into the government as a civil servant and diplomat, and for 14 years of his life worked very, very hard. There's nobody, I think, who worked harder to try to keep the Medici out and preserve a state based on the rule of law and open participation for a large number of citizens. Then, 14 years on into Machiavelli's job, that's when the Medici came back in a foreign-backed coup and it's shortly after that that Machiavelli got into trouble, went to prison, and then announces that he's written a little book on principalities, he writes in a letter to a friend. And beyond that, we don't really know what his motives were. We've got to kind of try of to course. piece it all together with a mix of history and very close reading. And, I mean, during his time as a sort of politician, he, he got to observe more than just the Medici's, didn't he? He travelled, I mean, he knocked up against the borders, who by all accounts make Medici look like Teddy bears, you know. Exactly what they are. He does, they, they, do, they do make the Medici look like teddy bears. And, and we do tend to think that, uh, you know, from the Borgia's sort of stereotype, we often hear, oh, you know, in this Renaissance Italy, it was all, you know, it was all blood and, and you know, popes poisoning other, you know, cardinals and this and that. That was true possibly among the Borgias, I wouldn't want to say, but in Florence it wasn't the case. The Medici were much more kind of, they were, they were benign despots when they were despots. They didn't poison their enemies. They didn't um, normally you know, execute or murder their, fa- their, their, their critics. They'd send them into exile. They were pretty violent in response to a coup attempt though, couldn't they? I mean, incredible yes. kind of bloodshed. Well, that's right. I mean, and Lorenzo de' Medici, the older one, um, who, who was around when Machiavelli was very young, he did, he did uh, become rather violent. And Machiavelli writes about this in his uh, later Florentine histories. Yeah, it, it, they, they were not as bad as the Borgias. And Machiavelli then was responsible for going to Cesare Borgia's court at the time when the Pope, Pope Alexander VI, who's the father of Cesare Borgia, was trying to 
basically expand a state and make a sort of papal state um, for his own family. And Florence was very directly threatened. And Machiavelli's job was basically to go to Cesare's court, talk to him and try to keep him at bay, try to persuade him not to invade Florence, which is kind of an interesting fact to remember when we read The Prince, because a sort of surface reading of The Prince might suggest that Cesare Borgia is Machiavelli's ideal prince. Machiavelli says things about Cesare that he says, I can't think what to repro- how to reproach him. And he also says, I would recommend him to be imitated by anyone who gets to power by fortune. And these things make us think, well, he loves Cesare. He thinks he's a shrewd politician. And the truth is, if you read Machiavelli's dispatches from the court, there's all sorts of subtle criticisms of Cesare. He clearly you know, didn't admire the man as much as we tend to think now. Does I mean obviously we think of him you know, now the prince is the central text that everybody knows about, yeah. but he wrote an awful lot more, didn't he? I mean there was these discourses on Livy, there's the letters, the dispatches. I mean how much do they all fit together? Is there a kind of coherent Machiavelli you can piece together from his writing? I think so very much, and that comes through I, I think in the way I've written about him. I think you know almost everything he wrote apart from the prince expresses a very strong kind of republicanism um, and, and, you know, a very strong passion for freedom, both in the sense of, you know, political freedom under the rule of laws, where every individual's freedom is protected, but also kind of human freedom that, you know, sort of deep love of existential freedom that, you know, if somebody's coming and trying to threaten your ability to control your own life and your own choices, you've got to resist that. Don't become fatalistic and say, let's just go along with them. And that's the spirit that comes through in everything he wrote. And he fought for freedom of speech all his life and and suffered for not you know, being able to say what he thought directly at many times. So when we get the prince, it's a sort of standout thing. When you read all these other works, you get the prince and, you know, he seems to be saying different things and teaching princes how to oppress people. It just doesn't quite fit. So it's a sit in context. Yeah. I mean, you're a political theorist academically by training, but you've written a book that's, you know, quite almost sort of novelistic in its treatment. I mean, you, I'm very interested in how you've approached that book and why you've why you've done it in the way you have. Was it trying to get a sense of him as a man? I was, exactly. I've written all these books about him before, just looking at his ideas and trying to kind of really get into his text and understand why are there these apparent contradictions and, and things. And when I decided to write something more about his life and times, well, one thing that really struck me was he's just got the most amazing language. He's got this most amazing way of expressing things. It's so vivid. It's funny. Um, It expresses such a character that I just thought it wouldn't, you know, if I'm going to introduce my Machiavelli, who's this not so cynical Machiavelli, there's still a big fighter. Machiavelli the goody. Yeah, well, he's not, yeah, but he's not, he's not, he's good, but he's also, a, you know, very ferocious and he can be very severe um, and very tough on people who he thinks are kind of attacking freedom. But if I'm going to do that, why should people believe me unless they hear him speak for himself? So I thought, them, you know, as much as possible, I can put forward Machiavelli's own words so people see you know, in all these different contexts, he's talking about things that don't at all remind us of the usual manipulator and schemer. I mean, what kind of a man was he? Oh, he was just the, the man you want to have a drink with. Uh, he was a joker. You, his, his letters and correspondence are just full of friends, you know, lavishing praise on his wit and, and, and missing him when he's not around because, you know, his humour, his ability to kind of deflate pretensions was just, just wonderful and, and, and it made people relax. He was, a, he was a funny man, but what I love about him is that he's so 
he's got this ability to express the darkness and the lightness of everything. He sees in any situation, he can see the funniest, the humor. He can make jokes about, you know, his worst situation. When he was in prison, he wrote sonnets to one of the Medici saying, look, here I am, you know, suffering so much, you know, um, this is how they treat poets, you know, come and punish me even more. You know, he makes fun of himself. But at the same time, he really does appreciate the abyss. He's looking into the abyss and seeing the dark side of every situation. Somehow combines these two things wonderfully. Well, he also, I mean, you know, the portrait you paint is one of a very sociable character, someone who's in conversation. But then, you know, towards the end of his life, when he's retreating to write The Prince, he says, he has this lovely line where he says something like he, he sort of retreats and holds conversations with the dead and he likes to be by himself and sort of live through them. I mean, is well, there a sort of retiring side to him as well? Well, I think he wrote that when, while he was writing The Prince. And he wrote, you know, he expresses those sentiments in the same letter where he announces to his friend that he has written this little book on principalities. And he says he composed The Prince through this conversation with Livy, Tacitus, Plutarch, all these ancient great authors. Yeah, so he was, and look, Machiavelli was a writer. This is something we tend to forget, and it's really important, I think, to remember, and and when we read The Prince and other such writings. He wasn't just a dry political treatise man or a man of politics who just had to be out in the field all the time. He was an absolutely brilliant writer who loved writing since his, you know, early days. And in the second half of his life, when he was out of a job, the Medici wouldn't actually employ him until very, very late in his life again. He devoted it to writing plays, writing poems. His plays were comedies. They were outrageous satires. And that's that's the man, I think we have to get the full picture of Machiavelli. He's a literary man as well as a political one. Yes, do his plays survive? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. His, uh, his Mandragola, um, which is his main, the play he's best known for, that's actually the work he was famous for in his own lifetime in Italy. And today in Italy, it's still regarded as one of the top, you know, Italian oh, plays still of all stage, time. Oh, sorry. yes. And I've seen it actually in, in the US and other places. I've seen student productions of it, which are absolutely brilliant. It's a very, very famous play. Yeah. And does, <laughs> it ought to it be better known. It works brilliantly. I mean, it's got a lot of Florentine, you know, references, but it's a political satire about basically the the stealing of a republic's virtue, using the kind of the theme of the old Roman theme of the rape of Lucretia. Um, he's got a character called Lucretia, who a young man coming back from being abroad, like the Medici, wants to come in and steal the virtue of this married woman. And so the whole play is people putting on disguises and using all sorts of cunning deceptions to get into the bed of this uh, um, virtuous married woman behind the back of her horrible boorish husband, who's your typical kind of stuffy Florentine lawyer. So it's got all these kind of resonances, but still, we can mostly relate to it today, I think. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, something I suppose I have to ask you amid the kind of global political turmoil, going, what do you think Machiavelli would have made of politics today? Would he have recognised, say, oh, Trumpism? I mean, what... Absolutely. He would have recognized Trumpism as a he would have he would have yawned and said, seen that uh, you know, a thousand times. Um it's he describes in the prince how ambitious people, men or women, desire to steal a republic and they do it by often by means that don't look kind of particularly illegal or violent at the time, but very subtly by misleading people, deceiving them, promising to heal divisions or or you know, between the sort of elites and the people, or indeed stirring up the divisions between the elites and the people, they gradually put themselves in a position to seize even greater authority. And attacking the rule of law is one of the key things that these people do. Um, Once they get a certain amount of power, they try to get the people behind them and persuade them that they need to 
bash the rule of law, do something transgressive and completely different, and sh shake up the old order. And the people say, oh, yes, this is the way that we'll finally get back our republic. We'll, we'll feel that we've got power again. But in fact, the leader often ends up taking it off himself, and then people realize when it's too late. So one way of reading the prince is as an expose of the these ways that ambitious people use in order to get more authority than anyone's actually handed them freely. So it's a sort of warning rather than an it's instruction manual. Exactly. Yeah. And one thing you were saying earlier that sort of intrigued me is that you wrote a piece for another newspaper where you got a lot of pushback and people claiming, oh, you've got this all wrong. I mean, why is he such a site of contestation still? Well, partly because he really is confusing to read. He, he, he has, he's got these different voices, not just in the prints, actually, but even in the discourses. He has, you can pick out quotes from Machiavelli that say things like, the ends justify the means, basically, or, you know, if, if you don't molest others first, then they'll molest you, especially in foreign policy. So you can cherry pick him and, you know, reconstruct a really tough, real politic kind of Machiavelli. You can cherry pick and reconstruct a really, really nice, soft, mild, you know, rule of law Machiavelli. The, the truth is, I believe, that his convictions lay very much in the second camp, but he's not at all sort of boring and mild in the way he expresses it. What he's showing you is the need to fight for rule of law and for freedom. And, you know, rule of law isn't, isn't attractive until it's attacked, really. We all think, oh, God, boring, leave it to the lawyers. But as soon as it's attacked, you start realizing that, you know, without taking the laws seriously and taking everyone's freedom seriously, no matter whether they're, you know, on the other side of the political fence than us or not, you know, everything's going to go to part. And we might soon, in a very short time, end up with something a lot worse than Trump <laughs> or, or Viktor Orban in Hungary. Or well, Putin. let's hope not. Erica Benner, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you. If you enjoyed that, please do subscribe to our iTunes channel. In this week's magazine, we have a particularly time-travelling book section. Roland Elliott Brown considers three books in 1917, Russian Revolution, while Andy Miller looks at a history of 2000 AD, the futuristic comic whose date is now in the past, while Brian Martin considers 2084, a dystopia by Boilem Sansal. We've also go back to the Reformation. Peter Stamford considers Eamon Duffy's latest collection of essays, while Jane Ridley looks at Talleyrand's last years in London. Lee Langley considers the memoirs of a polar bear, and Mick Brown looks at the rackety life and awful poetry of Khalil Gibran.